chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul, as inspired by the Holy Ghost, gives us some information about the faith of Abraham. Abraham is known in many circles as the father of faith, the father of our faith. And uh, the Bible uses him as an example of believing God. The characteristics of his faith are used as examples for us to emulate. You know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing how important this thing called faith is. The Bible says you can't be saved without faith, so that makes it important. The Bible says you can't please God without faith, so that makes it doubly important. And this thing called faith is of such importance that God even making promises to Abraham prior to making a covenant with him, the first time he appeared to Abraham, he just simply said, go where I tell you to go, leave your father's house and all your kinsmen. Go where I tell you to go and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and thou shalt be a blessing. But as Abraham obeyed and walked with God more and more, he got to know him better, just like it would, just the same way it works with us. And as a result, there came a point in time where it was clearly identified as the will of God for him to have children. But because he had, he being Abraham, had grown to such an age, he was about 100 years old, the Bible says. Sarah, his wife, was 90. It indicates to us that he lost his faith. Or maybe a better way to say that was his faith was no longer active concerning the promise of having a child. But God had to get him back in faith. It's interesting to me how that God could not, in order to fulfill his plan of redemption, his plan of interaction with man and blessing man here on the earth, God couldn't just say, well, Abraham, I know it's tough, but don't worry, I'll do this one on my own. It was very important for Abraham to walk in faith and receive the blessing of God by faith. Well, if that was true concerning Abraham, how much more should that be true or is that true concerning us? Because we've got a lot more information about God than Abraham ever had. We have a lot more knowledge about the will of God, the plan of God, his purpose, and what Jesus won for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. But he had to get Abraham back over in faith. Now, the Bible tells us, and I'm going to take for granted that you know a little bit about Abraham at least, so that we don't have to go back and look at all the scriptures. We're going to go look at some uh, as it is. But when Abraham was about 99, about a year before he had, uh, he and Sarah gave birth to Isaac, the Lord appeared unto him and talked to him about having a son. And Abraham had all but given up at that point. He, one thing the Bible says is that he laughed at the promise or at God's reminding him of the promise that he made to him 25 years earlier. He laughed at that, indicating that he was no longer expectant concerning that. So he asked for God to bless Ishmael, which was the child that he had probably 10, 12 years before Isaac was born, before he got over in faith and God was able to fulfill his promise. And so he just asked God to bless Ishmael. And God said, well, because he's your son, I will bless him. But that's not the blessing I talked to you about. So he had to get Abraham back over in faith. And apparently that was a turning point for him on that journey back into faith, back into believing God. Now, don't get me wrong. Abraham had believed God for a lot of things before that. The Bible says that it was faith that led Abraham out of the uh, land of his fathers or the Chaldees. It was by faith that he sojourned into where God told him to go. And so he's operated in a level of faith in other areas already. 
But apparently because of the delay, because of the time involved, Abraham had turned loose of his faith concerning his son. Or at least the son was Sarah. But God reminds him that that was the ultimate plan and God's plans don't change. Abraham may have changed in his thinking about it, in his expectation and in his faith, but God never changes. Well, a couple of months after he appears to Abraham, he appears unto him again. And he talks to him about this child of promise. He gives him a timetable. He said, it's, it'll be done this time next year. Sarah is listening outside the tent and she laughs and God calls her on it. He says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Well, Abraham understands all about laughing. He's just exited from that place of laughing over into a place of faith. He knows everything about that. He knows why she laughed, even though she denied it. He understood everything about that. So these verses in uh, Romans chapter 4 are telling us about where Abraham had come back to. That place of faith that he had once had perhaps lost in a measure and now returned back to. So in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, as it is written, we know that God had said these things. And that's why Paul mentions, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. Now we know in the um, four Gospels concerning Jesus' healing ministry, as we've said before many times, there are 19 individual cases of healing in the four gospels. Seems like there's more than that because some gospel writers refer to the same ones. But if you take them apart and look at them for what they are, there are 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. And almost 75% of those people that were healed were healed on their own faith. Almost 75% of the people that received their healing, there is some explicit reference to their faith like in the case of the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5 Jesus said daughter your faith has made you whole there are other places where Jesus asked do you believe that I'm able to do this he asked of two blind men do you believe I'm able to do this they said yes Lord and they received their healing so there are almost three out of four of the cases almost 75% of the cases of healing that are identified in the four gospels people were healed on their own faith now, there are a couple that, that doesn't reference any faith whatsoever. Like, for example, in John chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus asks, he comes to him and talks to him about faith. He's searching for faith. He says, wilt thou be made whole? And the guy says, I don't have anybody to help me in the water. Well, he didn't have any faith. He's not expectant of anything. He's not even expectant to be able to get into the water first because he's too slow. His condition enables somebody else to get down before him. And I doubt if there was a very polite line for people waiting to get in that water after the angel troubled it. I'm of the opinion that there was pushing and shoving and people were willing to cut each other's throats to get down into that water and get healed. Well, this guy, because of his condition, saw his chances of receiving healing were gone. 
And Jesus heals the man anyway. God initiates something to show a principle that it's not looking, it's not the time to look for the angel to trouble the waters anymore because God sent a man to the earth. So almost three out of four cases, almost 75% of the ones that were healed in Jesus' ministry were healed on their own faith. Well, that makes faith triply important, doesn't it? Because if we're going to receive our healing, we're going to have to receive on our own faith. Now, I know that cuts some people out right off the top. I know some people don't want to believe anything. They don't want to have to believe anything. They don't want to exercise themselves to hear the word, learn the word, draw close to it, make confessions of faith. They don't want any part of that. Well, unless God moves supernaturally by the Holy Ghost to initiate something on their own, they're never going to get it. And God sometimes does that, but he doesn't do it every time. So here in this story of Abraham, it tells us certain things about faith. Again, verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. The reason that's there is it's showing us that that was God's will. It was God's will for Abraham to be the father of many nations, but Abraham still had to believe if he was going to become the father of many nations. So many people have the idea that whatever is the will of God will just automatically happen. And this disproves that. Over and over again, we see cases of where Jesus was sent to the earth to minister healing, anointed of the Holy Ghost to minister healing, and people refused to receive. They refused to accept the truth that he shared with them, and so they failed to receive. In his own hometown of Nazareth, the Bible says in Mark chapter 6, and he could there, verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work, save he laid his hands upon a few sick folks, few folks with minor ailments, and healed them. Well, wasn't it the will of God to heal cripples in Nazareth like he had in the other cities, Capernaum and others? Sure, God's will never changes. If God wanted cripples in Capernaum to be healed, he wants cripples in Nazareth to be healed. Well, why weren't any cripples healed in Nazareth then? The Bible says it was because of their unbelief. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. If unbelief, a failure to exercise faith, hindered Jesus who had the Spirit of God without measure... The full package concerning the power of God to heal. Then how much more important is it going to be in our day for people to have faith when we only have the Spirit of God by measure? The church body as a whole has the same measure of the Holy Ghost that Jesus had. But you and I just have a part of that. So if faith was necessary in Jesus' day with unlimited power, how much more faith is going to be uh, necessary in our day? So it's revealing to us the will of God in verse 17. We know because it's written that God said, I have made thee a father of many nations. Now notice that next phrase, before him whom he believed. You see that phrase before him? I do all my studying now on on iPads and that kind of stuff. But the study Bible that I used to have is the Thomas Nelson Bible. The study Bible I used to have and used to use and preach from had a little number there by that word before. And when you took it over into the reference the column, center column, where they have the reference notes. It said that the Greek literally says, or like him. Here where it's saying that Abraham, before God, whom he believed, it's literally trying to tell us, and the Greek language brings this out. It's trying to tell us that Abraham became an imitator of God in certain respects. Well, that shouldn't throw us. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 says we should be imitators of God. It's talking about walking in love, but it says be imitators of God and walk in love like your heavenly father does. 
But Abraham saw fit. He saw the necessity to be an imitator of God in a couple of respects. So let's see what he was imitating of God. Let's see what he changed his behavior to that brought him into this place of faith where he received the miracle birth of Isaac. Before him, or like unto him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Notice the two characteristics. Now this is the Holy Ghost telling us. It's the Holy Ghost revealing to us not from God's point of view, but from Abraham's point of view. Paul is simply telling us by the Spirit of God that which the Jews understood about Abraham's walk of faith, about what Abraham did and what it took for him to receive the miracle birth of his son Isaac at the advanced age of he and Sarah. So like unto God, imitating God, he did two things. Imitating God, he imitated him in the first characteristic of first respect, who quickeneth the dead. The word quickeneth literally means to make alive. So it's saying that Abraham operated in some way according to God's quickening power. And then the next characteristic that he became like God is he began to call things that were not as though they were. So those two characteristics, he became like God as far as quickening the dead was concerned and calling those things which be not as though they were concerned. How do you imitate God concerning the quickening or the making alive of something that's dead? I mean, of all the characteristics of God that you could pick that the Bible would tell us that we should be imitators of and take on those same characteristics as a result, how does quickening the dead fit? How do you and I imitate God concerning quickening the dead? Well, folks, the only thing the Bible speaks of that was dead in this passage of Scripture, is Abraham and Sarah's bodies. Let's keep reading. Like unto him, knowing that God's plan and purpose in his will, express will, was to make uh, Abraham the father of many nations. Literally, Abraham had been made the father of many nations. So he was like unto God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope, that means without any physical evidence, to bolster his hope without any physical evidence to stand upon, to encourage him in this impossible thing that God has said he wants to do for him. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. In other words, since he didn't have any natural evidence, he didn't have anything natural to put his hope in. The condition of his and Sarah's bodies, as far as reproductive work is concerned, lends no evidence, no credibility whatsoever to a stand of faith. So if he's going to have faith, it's going to have to be in something else other than what he sees and feels. What is that? That which God spoke. He put his faith and used as a foundation for his faith what God said. And what God said was, so shall your seed be. Now he's referring back to Genesis chapter 15. We'll look there in just a minute. But he's referring to Genesis chapter 15 where God tells him to look up into the starry night. And in looking at the stars, he said, now count them. Well, of course, that's an impossible task. So, but God's trying to get the point across, your seed shall be like the stars in the sky in number. And that's what Abraham believed. That's what Abraham decided to put his foundation of faith, to build his foundation of faith on. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. When he heard what God said, 
And again, this is about age 99, not at age 75 when he first appeared to him. But 24, maybe 25 years later, he believes what God said about so shall your seed be. And that's what God counted as righteousness. Verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Now, if you want to know what that's really trying to say, just take the word, two words not out of there. Let's read it that way. And being weak in faith, he considered his own body now dead. That's what weak faith does. Weak faith is aware of the promise of God, but it gets distracted by what it sees and feels. So we see that if you want to be weak in faith, here's some very specific instructions on how to. And being weak in faith, he considered his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, also the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's what weak faith would do. Weak faith looks at the circumstances alone and says, I can't do it because of this condition or circumstance or event. But that's not what it says about Abraham. It says, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. Here's the point I'm trying to get to you folks. Back to verse 17. Like unto God in these two respects, or these two characteristics, the quickening of the dead, the only thing that this passage of Scripture mentions about dead is the bodies of Abraham and Sarah. He's certainly talking not about physical death, but he's talking about dead in a reproductive sense. Their bodies were not functioning in the way that they would need to to bring forth a son. And of course, this was because of their advanced age. That's the only thing these, these scriptures talk about being dead. And so that means that Abraham is imitating God in some way that brings the dead things, in this case, their bodies, back to life. Well, what is that thing? The second characteristic. He called things that be not as though they were. Here's what that means, folks. That means in some way, and I don't claim to know the answer to this. I assume that Paul didn't know the answer to it either. Or he would have given us a record of it. And maybe it's better that we don't know specifically how it went or what happened. Because if we did, if the Bible told us exactly what Abraham said and how often he said it and how he, every little minute detail of how things went, we probably would have turned that into some kind of ritual, thinking that the, uh, is, the more we can repeat what Abraham said, the more things would work. But instead, the Bible tells us the two characteristics. Abraham spoke life to his body in some way or another. He had to. And in speaking life to his body, it was being, he was being an imitator of God. Because how does God do a work? He speaks his word, and it comes to pass. That's how he created the earth. And God said, and it was. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us, and God said, and it was. So he's being an imitator of God by speaking, not according to what he sees in his body but by speaking life to his flesh. And in so doing, he's calling things that be not as though they were. Or more specifically, let's say it this way, he's calling his dead body, dead in a natural sense, as far as reproduction is concerned. 
he's speaking to a dead body, calling it alive. Can you see that? Now I want you to look at some scriptures with me. Turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to come back to um, Romans chapter 4, or at least we'll refer to it. But let's look at some other things. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. He said, My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them depart, let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Now we understand that when the Bible talks about the word heart, if it's not literally talking about the organ that pumps blood, which it rarely does. Heart is a reference to the spirit of man, the innermost part of our being. So here where it says, my son, attend to my words, he's telling us, he's giving us instruction if we want to be successful and receive what the Bible says God has for us. First and foremost, we're going to have to accept the word to be true no matter what. We're going to have to attend to the word more than we attend to anything else. That doesn't mean it's wrong to go to a doctor. It doesn't mean it's wrong for the doctor's diagnosis to be shared or considered or understood, whatever. But it means no matter what the doctor says, it means no matter what we feel in our bodies, no matter what we see going on in our lives, if we're going to reap the benefits of verse 22, my words are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh, then we're going to have to carry out the instructions and keep the instructions that are referred in verses 20 and 21 and 23. So he says, my son, attend to my words. Put the word of God first place, no matter what. No matter what you hear, no matter what the doctor may identify, factually identify in your body, put the word first. Notice the next thing he says is incline your ear into my sayings. That means the same thing audibly as attending to the word. One way that we attend to the word is we listen to it over and over and over again. Now, wouldn't it be great if the first time we ever heard or saw the Word of God read for ourselves, something in the Word of God, that automatically it just stuck on the inside of us and that was ours forever? Wouldn't that be great? But I'm sure you've had the same experience that I have or something similar. There have been scriptures that I've known for years, decades, and then all of a sudden one day my eyes are open to what it really means, or I see a truth in there that I had missed for whatever period of time that I knew it was there. The Word's a living thing. It's alive. It's God-breathed. It is the power of God to save and to heal. And so there's no way that we can ever get it all the first time. No matter how much you get, there's always more. So here where it says, attend to my words and incline your ear unto my sayings, it means what God says should be, and if you want to receive from him, must be more important than anything else you hear or see. More important than anything else you hear or see. Notice verse 21, it says, let them not depart from thine eyes. Let them not depart from thine eyes. That simply means this. It means we should value the word of God to such a degree that we see ourselves with whatever the Bible says is ours. The Bible says that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you're healed. Well, if we're going to personalize that, if we're going to attend to the words, if we're going to incline our ear unto its sayings, then that means we're going to have to take it personally and apply it to ourselves. That means we're going to have to see ourselves well. We're going to have to see ourselves being healed, receiving healing, or healthy and well, healthy and whole. 
That's what let not the word depart from before your eyes means. It means focus your attention on the word to such a degree that you see yourself with what the promise declares is yours. Notice the next thing he said. He said, keep them in the midst of your heart. Again, he's talking about your spirit. How do you keep the word in the midst of your heart? I'm going to refer you to a scripture in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Joshua is taking over for, for uh, Moses as the leader of the children of Israel. They're going to cross the Jordan River and they wind up crossing the Jordan River. And as it parts, God parts the sea for them. And they walk over on dry ground just like Moses led the people out of Egypt. Same sign as they gave Israel concerning Moses. Joshua is going to do the same thing. He's going to go into the promised land. He's going to lead the battles and take possession of the land that the the former generation failed to do 40 years earlier. So God's telling him how to have success. He's telling him how to operate so that he gets the maximum success out of what God wants done. Again, it's not just a matter of what God's will is. If it's just a matter of God's will, it was the will of God for the children of Israel to go into the promised land 40 years earlier, 40 years before he told Joshua these things. But the people wouldn't have it. The people refused to believe. And their unbelief nullified, or at least postponed, the will of God coming to pass regarding the promised land. Here he's telling Joshua how to have success. He said, this book of the law, meaning the word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Now remember what we just read over in, Rome, in uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 21. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Keep the word of God in the midst of your heart. How do you do that? As God told Joshua, this book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. He's saying to Joshua, he's telling Joshua, say over and over and over again what I've told you. Say what my promises are. Say what I've promised to do for you. Say that the promised land is yours. That's the only way you can keep them from departing out of your mouth is to speak them again. And he said, let these words not depart from before, uh, before, before your eyes. Well, I'm, I'm quoting Proverbs again. Let me get back to Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. In other words, say it again and again. But meditate therein. Day and night. He's saying that the confession of the word of God is meditating. Now what's the point of meditating? Well the Bible teaches us that meditating in the word will plant the word in our hearts. Speaking the word of God over and over waters that word in our hearts until it takes root. And we come to a genuine belief. Not because of what we see, not because of what we feel. But we become convinced that since this is the word of God, this is the way that it will always be. So he says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein for then. After you speak the word to yourself, after you plant it in your own heart and water it by speaking it and confessing it. He says, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and thou shalt have good success. One of the most interesting things about Joshua 1.8 to me is that God doesn't even say he'll make their way prosperous. God didn't say that he would give them good success. He simply says the power of the word planted in your heart and held fast to in your spirit, your innermost being, will bring forth success and victory 
and prosperity, provision, healing, whatever you need from God. And he puts the responsibility over on Joshua. He doesn't say, and I'm sure Joshua would have thought it was a great thing if he did, but God didn't say, don't worry, Joshua. Now that that old generation has passed away, just stand back and watch what I do. Again, he's got to get his people in faith. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Faith is produced in your heart more by you hearing you speak than any other way. You may hear me preach. You may hear somebody else preach. You may alike and agree with what you're hearing preached. But it doesn't produce near the results. No matter how famous somebody else is, no matter how anointed they are, none of that other stuff matters as much as you can develop and build faith in your own spirit through your own words better than anybody else's. So back to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 21. Let them not depart from before thine eyes. See yourself with the answer, in other words. And then the last phrase is keep them in the midst of your heart. How do you keep the word in the midst of your spirit? By doing the same thing that God told Joshua to do. Saying it over and over and over and over again. Folks, we need to understand that there are different types of confession. Most everybody, when you talk about confession, the only thing they think of is confession of sin. Well, thank God we can confess our sin to the Lord and he forgives us. But more than anything else, the Bible talks about confession as being something that's the product of your spirit. Well, how does faith become a product of our spirits or our inner man? Through the confession of the word to build that faith inside of us. See, when we first start confessing the word in just about any area that there is, we begin to confess the word for the purpose of putting it inside of us, for the purpose of letting it take root in our hearts, our spirits, not to produce results. Because faith, Jesus said, talked a lot about faith being like a seed. Well, if you've got a seed, as quality a seed as it might be, it doesn't do any good until you get it planted. Now, in the seed is tremendous potential. We can hold an acorn in our hand and realize that the potential is there to create a 100-foot tree. But it won't do a thing until it goes into the ground. That's what our first confessions are like. The beginning of confessing the word is the planting of the seed in our hearts, our spirits. And then after a while, after it's taken root, after we've watered it by confessing the word, speaking the promises of God over and over and over on the inside of us, we become more and more convinced that what God has promised is true. Did you think about the, uh, the change that occurred in Abraham? One of the characteristics that, that uh, Romans 4 talks about it concerning Abraham's faith. He said Abraham was strong in faith, doing two things, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Here's my question. At what point did Abraham develop that confidence that what God had promised he was able to perform? He sure didn't have it a year before Isaac was born. He sure didn't have it when the Lord appeared to him and he laughed at the promise of having a child at 100 years of age. He sure didn't have it at that moment. Where did he get it? He got it by doing exactly the same thing that we do. By speaking the promise of God. By speaking what God said. God told me my seed would be like the stars of the sky. 
God's been faithful to me in everything else he's ever said. He's delivered me in situations where I was badly outnumbered. He's made a way for me where it looked in, in certain cases, certain instances, that there was no way. He has all these things to, to rely on and think back on, just like we do, concerning our experience or our walk with God. He has all those same things. And the more he says it, and remember, here's how he's like unto God. He's calling things that be not as though they were for the purpose of quickening the deadness in his body and Sarah's body. He's speaking life to his body, folks. He has to be. So back to Proverbs chapter 4. My son, attend unto my words, incline thine ear unto my sayings, let them not depart from thine eyes, keep them in the midst of thine heart, for, because they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their flesh. Health to whose flesh? The people that find it. The people that find the truth of the word. How do we know we're finding the truth of the word? If we're attending to it, if we're inclining our ear to his sayings, if we're letting, not letting them depart from before our eyes, and if we're keeping them in the midst of our heart. All those things have to do with confession, folks. All of these, those things have to do with the words that we speak. Now, I believe the reason for this, I believe this is the reason why God had to get Abraham back over in faith. I believe the biggest part of this is because God gave man authority on the earth. Man cannot abdicate that authority and expect to get the blessings of God. Man cannot take a laid-back approach and say, well, whatever God wants and whatever God's will is, that's what's going to happen. We've got Christian after Christian after Christian on the spiritual junk heap that believes that. And I believe that's the reason why God had to get Abraham in faith. How did he get him in faith? He spoke the word. But it was up to Abraham to take that word and make sure that it becomes a part of his own heart, his own spirit. Now notice verse 23. It says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. How does anything come out of your spirit? Through the words you speak. Through the words you speak. That's the only way your spirit really has an opportunity to express itself. And remember, we should understand this. We that are filled with the Spirit should understand this very well. Paul talked about, when I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. He's saying my head doesn't get anything out of it, but it's an expression from my heart. Now, what's the expression from his heart or his spirit? Speaking in other tongues. Speaking in other tongues. So those tongues that we speak... We're the ones that do the talking. The Holy Ghost is the one that gives us utterance. Those tongues that we speak are the issues of life or part of the issues of life that come from our heart into this world. The principle is the same. The way your heart expresses or your spirit ex expresses itself or we'll say it the way Proverbs 4.23 says, the way that the issues of life come out of your spirit or through your mouth the words that you speak the words that you speak now folks I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 23 we're going to fast forward a little bit after Isaac has been born 
Notice in verse 1 it says, And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. She's 127 years when she dies. These were the years of the life of Sarah. It tells us where she died. Now skip with, with me over to chapter 25. Verse 1. Then again Abraham took a wife, and, his, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him, mentioned six men. Abraham had six more sons. Now, Sarah was 90 when Abraham was 100, or about 100, as the Scripture says. So that means that when Sarah died, if she was 127, then Abraham was 137. So Isaac is 37 years old when he loses his mother, when his mother passes away. And Abraham remarries. He remarries. Now, after he remarries, he's at least 137 years old. I don't know how quickly he remarried. But let's, let's assume that everything was compacted. Let's just take the smallest number that we can and see the, the, the exceeding greatness of God's power. If Abraham's 137, let's say that he, he got married within a year of Sarah dying. So he gets married at 138. Then they have six sons. Abraham and Keturah have six sons. Doesn't tell us any of them are twins. So we're going to have to give them room or time for these six children to be born. Would 10 years seem a little ambitious? It's legitimate. It's doable. But let's just call it 10 years. I, I'm pretty sure that Keturah would have objected to doing all this stuff in 10 years. But nevertheless, if Abraham gets married at 138, then over the next 10 years they have six sons. That makes him 148 years old. Now, these scriptures in, in uh, chapter 25 go on to tell us that he lived to 175. But here's what I want you to see, folks. From the time that the power of God changed his body through Abraham speaking life to his body and calling those things which be not as though they were, we know what that entails. He didn't consider his own body now dead. Doesn't mean he denied the dead, deadness of his body. He recognized that his body was dead, and that's why he had to speak life to it. That's why he had to call his body alive instead of dead. How was he able to do that? By looking to the promise of God. He sure couldn't do that by looking in the mirror. But because he's looking under the promise of God, these things come to pass. When did they come to pass? When he was about 100 years old. Now fast forward, he's 148 years old. I want you to see the power of God changed his body not just for a few moments so he and Sarah could have a child. This is a 48-year-long change in his body. His body was not able to function at age 99 according to having children or, or getting Sarah pregnant. But here at age 148, he's had six more kids. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now God is able unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think. To him be the glory. To him be the glory. Folks, I think this has a lot to do with the question that Abraham was asked by the Lord concerning both him and Sarah. You remember that God asked when one of them laughed, God asked Abraham this question. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, folks, I don't know exactly how this worked. 
This was a few years before the commercials on ED started running. This was a little bit before Cialis started advertising the magic pills. But some way or another, Abraham had to be speaking life to his body. The reason we know that is because that's what happened. His body was quickened, not just concerning Isaac, but the quickening that took place in his body lasted for almost 50 years. Maybe more, much more than 50 years. Maybe it wasn't even close to the time frame that we've compacted it into. I don't know. But I think we're safe in saying that 50 years later, the Bible is indicating to us that the same power that changed his body when he was 100 years old or about 100 years old and changed Sarah's body when she was 90 years old. Look at the power of God at work. Are you with me? I want you to turn with me to one more scripture. And that's in Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. Now before we finish the last part of verse uh, 11, let's talk about it a little bit. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. I think on a higher level than you do. I operate on a higher level than you do. Now he's not in any way saying we can't think his thoughts. He's not saying in any way that we can't imitate his ways or do the same things that he does. It would be cruel and totally inconsistent with this scripture. It would be cruel for God to say, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, my ways are higher than your ways, tough luck for you. But instead, he gives us a natural example. For that which is given from heaven that enables us to think his thoughts and act his ways. He said, just like the rain comes down from heaven... It doesn't immediately evaporate and come back to heaven. It produces something on the earth. It waters the seed. And the watering of that seed is that which brings forth results. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It, my word, shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Please notice that he said the word, his word doesn't return unto him void. Now, folks, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Jesus said, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Why didn't he say forever thy word is settled in the earth, too? Because God controls heaven. Man has authority on the earth. And God is saying that just like the rain coming down to the earth, watering the earth, and then evaporating and coming back up into heaven. Just like the water cycle works, the word cycle works the same way. The word of God that's given from heaven is given for a specific purpose. That means healing scriptures are purposefully designed by God 
to bring healing and health to our bodies. That means scriptures on peace are purposely designed to bring peace into our lives. That means scriptures concerning prosperity and provision are purposely designed with sufficient power to provide those blessings and benefits. God's saying, every word that I've ever spoken has the power to do exactly what the promise says it'll do. But it can't just happen from heaven. When God speaks, it establishes his word in heaven. But only when we speak what God said does it establish it in the earth. Those are the two witnesses whereby the word of God is established. God speaking his word is the original And it establishes his word forever in heaven. But when we speak his word here on the earth, God said it will never return unto me void of power. It will never return unto me void of power. In fact, it activates the power that he supplies from heaven to produce the results on the earth that the scripture is intended to produce. Again, healing scriptures produce healing for our bodies. Scriptures concerning prosperity or provision produce provision results here on the earth. He's saying my word never returns unto me void. When you speak it, because I've already spoken it, it activates the power to bring the results. One last thing, one last point I want to make, and I'm going to turn back to Genesis chapter 15. I apologize for jumping around a little bit. But I want you to see some things. Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 1 and get the context. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. So we see that this is prior to the point where God spoke to him at age 99. And talk to him about, Abraham, about Isaac being born of him and Sarah. This is sometime much earlier than that. Years earlier than that. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars. Here's where God is speaking to him that which he based his faith upon. He believes what God said, so shall thy seed be, so that he might become the father of nations because it was the will of God. And God said he had already made him the father of nations. So he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. This is what Abraham believed. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it unto him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give this land, give thee this land to inherit it. Please notice verse 8. And he, Abram, said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now I want you to notice in verse 6 it says he believed in the Lord, believed what the Lord said, and it was counted to him for righteousness. You see that? Therefore, verse 8 can't be an act of unbelief. He's just expressed his faith toward God. But now he's just asking a legitimate question. He's not asking God for a good answer or else he's out. He's simply saying, how shall I know? 
And God doesn't take offense at that. Now, the next verses are going to cover some, well, some interesting things, but they may seem like they're unjointed or disjointed things. When Abraham asked, well, his name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet. Forgive me if I call him that out of habit, force of habit. But where he said, Lord God, where shall I know? Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? God spoke to him in verse 9 and said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece upon one against another, but the birds that divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Why is God talking about a sacrifice when Abraham's question was, how shall I know? Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit the land? Now, there's only two possibilities here, folks. One is that God is ignoring his question. But that would mean that certain scriptures, like call unto me and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things. That would negate some of those scriptures and invalidate the truth of the word. So therefore, we have to accept that God is answering Abraham's question. Whereby shall we know that he shall inherit the land? God's giving him an answer. But why is he talking to him about a sacrifice? If God's answer, if he's in the process of answering, what in the world does the sacrifice have to do with anything? Because, folks, this is the sacrifice that enters Abraham and God together in covenant. This is the sacrifice that Jesus fulfilled by dying on the cross, offering his own life. So Abraham's question, whereby, how shall we know that we shall inherit what God said was his? What God said was his was the promised land. What God said was his was uh, the promise of a child, the miracle birth of a child. The promise that's unto us is a little bit different. The Bible says we, because of Jesus fulfilling the the terms of the covenant with God, Abraham's covenant with God. We have a better covenant established upon better promises. So how shall we know that we can inherit the things that Jesus paid the price for? There's no question. Nobody will argue. The scriptures that say Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. Nobody is willing to argue Isaiah 53, 5, where it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. Now, some people will deny that means physical healing. But every time the words are used, the words in Isaiah 53, 5 are used, it's always referencing physical healing. So people will try to explain it away, but you cannot deny that it's there in the Scripture. You cannot deny that the same Scripture that talks about the payment or the price that Jesus paid for sin The price was also paid by the same precious blood of Jesus for physical healing for our bodies. Everybody acknowledges that it's there. They may not acknowledge why it's there. They may deny whether or not it belongs to us now, which is making the argument that part of it, the part that talks about the payment or the price paid for sins, is still good and valid, but the price paid for sickness and disease isn't. Says who? God said it was. In fact, Matthew chapter 8 tells us that Jesus healed all that were sick to show the relationship between healing all that were sick and Isaiah 53, 5. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. The Bible is 
giving us a commentary in, Roman, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. A Holy Ghost commentary that Jesus healed all that were sick in that certain place at that certain time to show the connection between the price he would pay the spilling of his own blood to fulfill Isaiah 53, 5. So therefore, if Abraham is asking the question, which he does clearly, he asks the question, whereby shall I know? How shall I know that I shall inherit this land? God answers his question by giving him the sacrifice. He's saying, your proof of the inheritance that I have made for you is ratified in the blood of this, these animals that signify the covenant that God entered into with Abraham on that day. But we're not living under the Abrahamic covenant. So what about our question? How shall we know we'll inherit healing? How shall we know that we'll inherit the things that Jesus paid the price for for us to have? And folks, the answer of God is because Jesus shed his blood. Because Jesus shed his blood. Now whether you know it or not, and I hope you do, but whether you know it or not, that is some of the best ammunition you can ever use against the devil. When the devil comes to you and says you're not having a, you don't have enough faith to get your healing, or he tells you that your condition is too advanced, nothing can help you. When he tries to remind you what the doctor says and get your eyes off of what the Bible says Jesus did for you, a wonderful answer is always, but Jesus died for this. But Jesus died to this. As a result, we can be exactly like Abraham was in his faith. We can speak life to our bodies because Jesus died for this. We can call the deadness of our bodies alive in whatever area we need to because Jesus died for this. Because Jesus died for this. I'm pretty well convinced that Abraham didn't go around talking about his, his testosterone levels. I'm pretty sure that Abraham wasn't required to confess something about his concerning his body. But I'm also convinced that he spoke life to his flesh. He called that which appeared to be, and from a physical standpoint was factually dead, he called his body alive. And we can do the same thing. In fact, the Bible tells us to use him as an example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus paid the price for us. He took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. The idea, the foolish notion that that which Jesus took for us, God still wants us to bear, is nothing more than just that, foolishness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid the price for sin and sickness and poverty. And our proof of healing, of righteousness, is very simply, Jesus died for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for carrying out your Father's plan of redemption and for healing our flesh. Can you agree with that? Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.